If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. If you hold any individual stocks out there, if there's anyone left who actually holds individual stocks in, 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 out there anymore, ask yourself a question. When was the last time my stock split? I mean, a lot of people own Apple, and that wasn't too long ago. Let's assume that you own a stock that isn't Apple. <laughs> uh, Google uh, split, not yeah. I'll I'm trying to do an introduction, <laughs> and I can't. What, what's, hey, if you own a stock, chances are it hasn't split lately. Why? No, because <laughs> most companies these days are not splitting their stocks anymore. Let's go to Money Beat reporters, Eric Holm and Ben Eisen. That was good. That was good. Thank you. So here's the thing. There have been two companies this year in the S&P 500 who have split their shares. That's down from about 20 years ago, 1997. It was two per week almost. That's crazy if you think about it. It's just a drastic shift and sort of a shift in perception and sort of what what makes a good stock. I would say this. The stock split is so rare. I think it's worth one of you guys actually telling readers – I keep saying readers, listeners – telling our listeners what is a stock split. <laughs> well, think of a I'm pizza. serious. I don't think it's yeah, that outrageous well, right, thing. The, the two examples. One would be um, trading uh, a dime in, in for two nickels. It's or well, or uh, okay. I know what a split is Eric. Okay, <laughs> so a stock split yeah. is when you when, when a, a company say for a standard two for one stock split. A company hands hands investors existing shareholders. Uh, an extra share for every share they hold, mm-hmm. and it effectively cuts the share price in half as well. So uh, a company that was trading at 100 uh, goes down to 50, and nothing else changes about the company, not its total market cap, not, not its, you know, uh, nothing the about the price gets t- cut yeah, in half. Oh. Yeah, the price gets yeah. cut in half, but, but, but your number of shares doubles, so right. what you, you still own the same right. amount of sh- uh, value of shares. I think the question that we're really trying to get into is what... Why did companies back in 90, why were they splitting so much? What was attractive to them about splitting their shares? Yeah. Um, go ahead, Ben. Uh, just for some context, this, was, this used to be sort of like a rite of passage sort of thing almost. When a share, when a share price would get too expensive, you would actually sh- split the stock because you wanted to keep the share pl- price a bit lower so that mom and pop investors could uh, you know, have access to it. They, they, they used to buy shares in, in, uh, in, 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 they had to buy them in larger quantities and so you keep the share price low so, so that it, it becomes so it's still available for people who are talk about the larger quantities aspect well i mean it, it used to be that um people had to buy stocks even small, small investors had to buy stocks in lots of 100 or more and um round number lots of 100 or more and they uh that's gone by the wayside for for you know retail investors you can buy a single share of a company now and um, yet, still somehow, people think that uh, price of a stock should be somewhere around, you know, thirty to fifty dollars, right? Or some group of people. That's fading now, obviously, because as we chronicle in the story that's online now, and it will be probably in the paper tomorrow. The um, average stock price in the S and P five hundred, after staying this range for decades of between like twenty five and fifty, has doubled since two thousand ten. It's it's almost up to to, to hundred dollars a share today. And what? I guess, like, you know, having to buy in those 100 lots, if your stock price, it didn't have to get that high to really price out a large number of mom-and-pop retail investors. So, like, you're, you're sort of reducing the demand almost for your shares. 
That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, back then, retail investors were also a larger segment of right. the investing population. So appealing to them um, was was important. And, and, and now just to think about how most retail investors invest these days, I mean, a lot of them That's use ETFs. That's what I was going to ask next. Yeah, a lot of them use ETFs, and ETFs have a completely different way of, of purchasing shares. Um, usually they're, they're, they're not done – they're done on a per share basis is what we found and when they're done on a per share basis they uh, it, it's actually beneficial for them to be more expensive because the, the actual trading costs are lower in that way so can we can we talk about what the actual you know not the actual but I mean what the real news peg for this was which was Amazon stock and sure. Alphabet for that matter yeah Amazon right? and Alphabet both are approaching a thousand dollars a share which used to be totally unheard of um, there's a few companies that trade that high. Berkshire Hathaway, of course, the most famous one, is near, nearly $250,000 a share. And Priceline is another one. Priceline is the largest company in the S&P 500. By the share uh, price. By share price, sorry. Yes. A very important caveat because as we <laughs> discuss repeatedly, share price tells you next to nothing about a stock. But yeah. by share price, Priceline is the most expensive uh, stock in the S&P 500. Trailing close behind now are not – actually, not too close behind, right, Ben? Uh, it is our Amazon and Google, which are right. both flirting with $1,000. And what's interesting about Amazon is it has been through many, many uh, stock splits over the years. Yeah, it's been it's on three since. Three, sorry. Uh, Not many, many. Right. But they were. They, I think it debuted in 1997. It had three stock splits by 1999, and it hadn't done, hasn't done it since. Wow. If everything else stayed the same, though, the stock now would be trading at $12,000 a share if they'd never done wow. a split, for what it's worth. And Google, in fact, we they, they had a stock split in 2000. 2014, but that was a sort of a special case where that was much more related to the ownership, I think, and stuff like that. They, they created a new share You're class. Right. So. so everyone who had an A share or a B share also got a C share. Uh, and that effectively did have the price of the shares. And it's, it's effectively a stock. And, and, but and, there was a reason for it. It was right, to, it wasn't, to allow the, the people who own the was, B shares to yeah. sell stock without reducing their voting interest. Right. That, that's what I was getting at. Is yeah. It wasn't the t- like just splitting to lower the price. There was actual... Um, Google, I mean, interestingly, Google was over twelve, I think, hundred dollars at that time. That's right. And yeah, so now it's climbing back up there. Google has been in this thousand uh, dollar rare error before, um, but um, uh, and you know the other thing that's worth noting is that Warren Buffett, you know, the the absolute mo- biggest proponent of not splitting the stock, did split Berkshire's Class B shares um, when they did a deal for Burlington Northern. The reason was that they used those B shares to buy out the smallest of the retail investors. They needed a, sort of a very small currency in order to do that. So, you know, even the biggest detractors against splitting shares do find some reasons you know, when it is. What I think is interesting, too, and you guys sort of get to this point very well in the story, is that both of these sort of ways of handling stock 20 years ago and today, it, it reflects what the companies think reflects what a healthy company's stock should look like. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The, the, um, it, 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 some people believe that uh, splitting stocks is a sign of a healthy company, that it shows progress and it shows um, excitement about the future. Um, other people believe that a high share price uh, signals some other kind of strength. That it's you know these guys are behemoths. They're they're massive. Look at yeah. that stock price. Both of them, as you know, we quote an economist in the story saying both of those lines of thinking are equally nonsensical. They, they the share price tells you 
next to nothing about a stock. And my favorite example for that is a company called Seaboard Corp, which is uh, they, they own Butterball Turkey and, and they're a shipping company. They trade at uh, more than $3,000 a share, um, which is massive. It's the second yeah. highest after Berkshire's Class A. Um, but the thing is that they have so few shares outstanding that they are worth, I think, $4.6 billion as a market cap. That's not nothing, but next to Amazon, it's 99% smaller than Which Amazon. Which is around right. like $440, $450 billion market cap exactly, at that point. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Right, right. One, of the, one of the questions I wanted to get to was Apple. Because Apple was an interesting example where back in 2014, they did the 7 to 1 split. And their, their stock actually did take off right, at, right from that point on. Now, granted, that was also around you know earnings and there's whole lot of other things about Apple <laughs> that drive its stock. But it was interesting to see the turnaround that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that it started. It had been in sort of a malaise up until that point, uh, a malaise for Apple. Uh, well, well, yeah, I mean, aside from everything going on with the company, one of the things that the, the stock split did for Apple was allowed it to be added to the Dow. Yeah, that's what I wanted. And, you know, in, in these days of, of passive investing, being added to a key benchmark index means there's a lot more investment money that goes into buying up your shares. Um, so there's that. But, and I think that gets at a good broader point with these stock splits that, yeah, you'll definitely find defenders of the stock split, uh, you know, sprinkled around the markets. Um, but it, it seems like a lot of it is, is for technical reasons. Like we talked to one uh, investment manager that talked about uh, s- like specifically separately managed accounts. And if you have an expensive share price uh, relative to a pretty small investment portfolio, uh, it makes it kind of clunkier to buy up uh, stock and, f- and, and make it the correct exposure in that, in that broader portfolio simply because the share price is so expensive. But again, that's sort of a technical element uh, which which uh, you know is is very separate from the idea of like like of, of value for what the company is worth. And also, it, it should be noted the reason they had to do that for the Dow is the Dow, unlike the S and P five hundred, which is market cap weighted, the Dow is share price weighted. So having a big share price means you have a much greater impact on the on the market. Mm-hmm. And so typically, they don't <laughs> like to add you know a company with a thousand dollar share price because mm-hmm. um, that would kind of um, Give it a much bigger weighting, right? Right, exactly. And uh, one of uh, one of the questions, though, is is the I mean, did the economists really poo poo the idea of it having a psychological impact, like with sort of you know your retail investors, your mom and pop? Because it, I mean, is there like especially like in a case like Apple where someone might want to just own one share and at a hundred dollars, it's much more affordable than you know when it's closer to a thousand. I mean, is there a psychological sort of aspect? I mean, or they just completely toss that out? Well, the psychological aspect is that, that you know, the one economist I talked to, um, some retail investors, and he knows, you know, of, of some, they mistakenly believe that a higher stock price really could limit the upside to the shares or, or, or make it harder for the shares to, to climb. That's just not true. It's just patently false. And yeah. Berkshire Hathaway is the best example of that. Yeah, yeah. It massively has outperformed the market over the years. And that was it massively outperformed the market when it was $1,000 a share, when it was $10,000 a share, and when it was $100,000 a share. Are you getting out of reach for some retail investors? And I think Ben described that it, it, one way about how that's that's the case. It, it, it definitely, when you get into $1,000 a share territory, then you are um, pricing out some people. And in fact, uh, someone raised that at Amazon's uh, shareholder meeting, annual meeting this year, this this week, uh, told that to Jeff Be- Bezos, and 
he said, listen, we're not thinking about a share split now, but it is something we think about. And what, like, just real quickly, is there any reason now for companies, I mean, what what's the argument for a company to split its shares? Other than being misguided, <laughs> or not, I mean, that's no. It's to, to be still be available for retail investors. Yeah. Uh, if 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 you really are getting sky high, you know, yeah. several thousand dollars a share, there could be a case to be made, or or for portfolio allocation purposes. I think the mm-hmm. the thing that we didn't say yet though is that institutional investors hate share splits, yeah. and the reason is that they pay for the most part by the share when they trade. You know, they they in the U.S. We should right, say right. this is a very uh, the U.S. is an outlier on this, but they hate it when they split the shares. It's a small price per share, but over time it really adds up. So if you go two for one, you're doubling their trading costs. They hate it. All right, Eric Ben, thank you very very much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you for coming on. And everyone, stay tuned. We are going to come back with more. Another story about the quants on Wall Street. Stay tuned. If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Follow the Wall Street Journal on your favorite podcast app. Search WSJ on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and any Amazon Alexa device. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul and Steve here in the studio with Ben Eisen, who stays with us from the first segment, and Wall Street Journal reporter Justin Baer. Justin, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Uh, doing all right. And we brought Justin into the studio because we wanted to get his take on his story, his contribution to the Wall Street Journal series of the quants. You've been reading it, I'm sure, online all week. A lot of stories. And Justin's Justin's contribution is about the college jock on Wall Street. That's correct. Yeah, it I, was. Uh, oh no, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it was. It was um, just an observation um, dated back on another story I'd been working on about how um, people had said that that uh, uh, collegiate athletes tend to do very well in risk-taking positions, namely traders. And um, that seemed interesting to explore now, just given what we know about the direction of of the industry, the uh, ways in which um, trading floors have been changing over the years, and and how those trends have been accelerating, which, of course, is the topic of the series as well. No, I mean, I feel like the idea, like, of, you know, the jock on Wall Street on the trading floors had become very ingrained in sort of our, in the stories that you would read, because you'd always read about like Billy Donovan, for example, you know the coach of the Oklahoma City Thunder, played at Providence, coach of Florida uh, after that. But he was like he had gone to Wall Street for a couple of years and then you know went back to his uh, true love of you know uh, of of coaching. But you constantly sort of heard of players, you know, like you know Olympians stuff like that. that like their next career move was sort of to make it to the floor. Of a tra- you know one of the trading firms on Wall Street, um, so that it sort of rung true. But it was interesting to see that this is no you know it's coming to an end. This like you know um, for them like this is Wall Street's not the second sort of career. Sure. Well, you think about the the, the functions that um, the X-Jocks tend to do very well in um, both traders as sort of mainline traders on on the desks, but then also in sales, and those happen to be as you see these big shifts happening toward electronic markets. Obviously, quant investing, um, just the overall shrinking of, of Wall Street. Um, 
those are the functions that we're seeing um, disappearing at the fastest rate and, and getting replaced by machines. Sure. One of, I mean, one of the interesting sort of anecdotes you have in your story is you have uh, this guy. You know, basically. What would what advice would you give someone you know a jock coming out of college now who is thinking of going into finance? <laughs> don't. And that's something I like. I personally, you know, I don't know. Like that's you know we think about that with journalism. We think about that is you know much, I think far more about industries that are really suffering. Um, you, you don't necessarily think about you know that for Wall Street. And I, I thought that really sort of rung true to me. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean part of the reason why that there's been this pipeline is that they're they are like. Any in other affinity group, right? Any sense that you have older friends who who make that step into a into a job, and then they um, draw from that same pool of applicants, uh, you know, as as they move up and graduate and and uh, head to the same place. And so, part of that is is just you know that's true in a lot of, a lot of different instances. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's um, you know there's a lot has been changing on on the trading floor for a long time, and and uh, some are are far more obvious, um, you know, given the way the exchanges are now run, and others are, are more nuanced. And so the kinds of jobs, kinds of skills that are in demand uh, today are different than the, where they were five, ten, twenty years ago. Even though. The seeds of those changes have been underway for some time. You know what, what I thought was funny in looking at this this article is that this is like this is like Revenge of the Nerds for real. Oh yeah, no, I was going to say the uh, same yeah. thing. I, I mean, mean, this is thirty years ago. That was a comedy. You know, oh the the right. nerds beat the jocks. Oh my god, they turned the tables. Like this this is for real. Who's laughing now? Who's right. laughing now? The right. nerds are laughing. <laughs> like. This is really ha- – I mean, this has yeah, happened. Well, I think – yeah. I mean, abs- uh, yeah, definitely. And then the question is, is um, you know, and this is this is a broader question for, for anyone who's serious about working in finance or, frankly, most most industries today is that when you come out of college, the, the, the skills that you um, that you need to, to broaden your, your chances of getting a job um, are much more skewed toward math – Science, you know, the STEM majors, uh, computer programming, things that banks, brokers, asset managers, um, you know, can't get enough of these days. That actually leads me to a question I had. I, I thought the story was great, and uh, afterwards, I was I was just wondering, like, are there any uh, you know jock PhD computer scientists? Is there anyone who has like the the whole package? The total the old package. School, yeah, the old the old school Wall Street and the new school Wall Street. Yeah, it's funny. So I was talking to a a, um, a headhunter focuses on on Wall Street, and you know I said, look, you know there are th- those people do exist, but you know they're very very hard to find. And um, and then after the story ran, I got an email from from a reader who who did have that background, who played sports in college, and yet. Um, you know, was a had some programming skills. I think and majored in computer science, and was talking about the way both sides of that of that coin and, and the, how different those differing experiences. Which you know, which did he draw from the most in his career? Which was now, I think he's in his late late forties now, is now kind of winding down. And it was just interesting to hear his response. But those people do are out there, even if they're. But I mean, and, and that, that also has to be dramatically changing too. I mean, as you spoke. I mean, it is increasingly. It's not just finance. I mean, if you want to have be secure in your job uh, for the foreseeable future uh, going forward, you're going to have to know how to, you know, probably program. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, and 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 have a, a significant 
you know, capabilities were computers, I would say. Um, so, I mean, it, it would seem that, like, you know, a lot of these people are just successful people. They're going to migrate. They'll adapt, right. I think, uh, and just a, a serious point, and in, in, in one that a couple of folks raised to me is that the, the people that play sports in college, I mean, it's a, it is a major, major commitment, and they have to get up super early and train, and it's, it's seven days a week um, for four years often. And um, so their willingness to, you know, take those extra classes or, or make that a, you know adapt in that way you described is probably greater than the many in terms of uh, in their ability to make yeah. that transition so it'll be interesting to see I mean if, if we see if we see I mean these are that. these are very like I mean like a lot of the places they're pulling from too are top academic schools where, and you're talking about you know sports that are inc- you know where they're very successful and competitive um, you know so you think that the same kind of personality traits that you know will lead you to be successful you know they tend to be both successful on and off the field in many cases. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then again, the, one of the big areas that, that uh, a lot of these guys were, were, were great in was, was sales, right? And yeah. so, you know, there are there are sales jobs in, across not only the street, across finance, but in obviously a lot of other industries. So even if there are fewer salespeople needed um, in the sales and trading businesses, um, those are skills that are fairly easily to translate to other parts. And just going back to the the affinity groups that you mentioned, I mean, I wonder if some of that's starting to filter back to the college campuses that, you know, the young investment bankers get to Wall Street and they sort of realize, you know, I I should have taken more computer science classes and that's filtering back to the undergrads that are still on campus. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, it has to. And I think it, it, I wouldn't limit it to to athletes, right? I think people see the writing in the wall, they see the way all these Industries are changing, and in some cases, really rapidly. So I think that's makes sense. And you're going to start seeing parents, you know, <laughs> pressuring their kids. I mean, you always talked about that, like your parents pre- trying pressuring their kids away from, you know, majoring in liberal arts or you know doing one of the you know something that's more fun and and no, do something career oriented, like you know, <laughs> like yeah. law, pre med. I, I mean, I yeah. got. Did you get that? Pr- I got that pressure no. when I was going to college. I was. My parents, my parents, more than thirty years ago. My parents probably like- gave up on raising me uh, way too early, and that's why I turned out to be a journalist. Um, the but the, I mean, you could see parents more instead of being like, you need to be an engineer yeah. or a law, being like, no, you got to major in math, you got to major in computer science, um, because those are where the jobs are going to be. Yeah, we got, I mean, and not just and in as finance a, as a as a country and, and the education. I think goes through waves. I mean, a lot of people anecdotally, you know, if you if you were, I guess, roughly around. So, you know, if you grew up in the space race era, there were tons of kids that, that went to school thinking they'd become engineers and, and um, sort of ebbs and flows. So yeah. I think we're probably at a point now where that's increasing again. One of the questions um, that sort of came to mind, too, was you looked at – there's a great stat in your story, and it's like 26 percent of Harvard's 2016 class of the athletes went to – you know, onto a career in finance, while only 16 percent of the non-athletes did from Harvard's graduating class. One of the questions I have is – and this sort of goes back – is are athletes sort of – Attracted to Wall Street's culture, um, where it's you know it's a very competitive, winner take all, you know, driven sort of culture, or you know, did Wall Street really sort of search out those guys because you know they felt like the, the traits that an athlete, someone who's successful in athletics, 
you know brought to the table would be successful on Wall Street. Yeah, you know, I, I, I first have to give a shout out to the Crimson, uh, the Harvard, um, the student paper that actually that did that survey. Uh, okay. That we used. Um, um, yeah, I think uh, I think a bit of each of those things. I think it. Um, you know, there was this pipeline that was created, and 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 as people made it to to Wall Street with that background, they looked for for people that um, you know resembled themselves, right? And and I think that was fairly natural. And yeah, I think there is an element of it that is a competitive atmosphere. Obviously, Wall Street are paid you know more than most uh, fields out there. So I think a bit of all of the above. And what what like what sort of sports? Did you like our, you know sort of does Wall Street tend to pull from? I mean, where what like you know is it lacrosse? Is it basketball, football? I mean, you know, swimming. Yeah, you know, I, I, I it's interesting. I, I, tr- I tried um, really hard to find some data that would support that, and, and hoping that either the NCAA or some other um, organization had this great database that would explain where everyone was working a few years out of school depending on what sports they play. I couldn't find it. Yeah. And, and Zeta said they didn't, they didn't have, keep track in that way. Um, I think on, on Wall Street, I think the, the, answers, the answers I most frequently got were really the team sports, you know, and, and where, um, you know, they talked about the importance of, of not only of teamwork, but also kind of the, the discipline to staying within your role, knowing that, you know, when you begin to veer off of that path and start to do other people's jobs, that can get you into trouble uh, and true in sports and, and also um, in trading. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, there are the sort of stereotypes, you know, across football um, or big um, – Baseball, wrestling—I mean, you kind of name it. You name it. Um, but again, I, they stressed, you know, in some cases the um, the team sport aspects more so. I, did, I, I was just reminded of the Kelly Evans, you know, uh, leader from a few years ago. Um, right after the sort of former final, Wall Street Journal reporter, yeah, now CNBC, CNBC anchor Kelly Evans. Um, yeah, she she does, but she wrote just a great story about the all the Lehman bankers, the Lehman mm-hmm. had a lacrosse team of former you know sure. college lacrosse players, and what they were doing now that they're you know the team was being broken up with uh, the uh, Lehman's bankruptcy. Great, and yeah, it's uh, yeah, no, it would be interesting. Yeah. There are they're still Wall- on Wall Street. Well, there aren't yeah. as many uh, Wall Street firms. Yeah, I mean, are, too, yeah. to, to really do it. Right, right. All right, Justin, great story. Thank you very much for coming in, spending a few minutes with us. Thanks for having me. Everyone, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously.